Hello and welcome to the Rockefeller Center's podcast, Rocky Talk. My name is Ben Vogley, and I'm a 22 at Dartmouth. Today, I'm joined by Sonu Betty, the Joel Parker 1811 professor in law and political science at Dartmouth. Professor Betty is the author of four books, Private Racism, Rejecting Rights, Beyond Race, Sex, and Sexual Orientation, Legal Equality Without Identity, and Political Contingency, of which he was the co-editor. He has published articles in leading peer-reviewed journals in political science and political theory, as well as in numerous law reviews. Professor Betty was awarded the Jerome Goldstein Award for Distinguished Teaching twice, chosen by a vote of the Class of 2014 and the Class of 2017. His research interests are in the areas of contemporary political theory, constitutional law and theory, and race, law, and identity. Professor Betty, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you on. Great to be on, Ben. Thank you. Of course. So to start, I'm going to ask a bit of a broad question. How do you approach the study of race? Yeah. So uh, I'm in the government department at Dartmouth, and uh, I'm a political theorist. And so so, so the approach that uh, I take is an evaluative approach. So the methodologies or frameworks that I use in my scholarly work and teaching are not Mm. empirical uh, methodologies, but normative ones or evaluative ones to to see what are the evaluative conclusions uh, about particular kinds of behavior. So for instance, what would one say, what's the evaluative framework that would say a particular behavior is unfair or wrong uh, or uh, a form of racial injustice as my current work does? I see. Were you a Lincoln-Douglas debater in high school? Out of curiosity, that sounds very much like a form of debate that I did. I I wasn't, but there's this fantastic movie, Ben, called Listen to Me that's about debate uh, that had Kirk Cameron in it. But anyway, that, no, I was not. (laughs) (laughs) Gotcha. Um, So in in a recent book of yours, Private Racism, you outlined two methods of Uh, approaching racial justice, the ideal society approach and the actual society approach. Could you explain what these approaches are and if you endorse one or the other when it comes to uh, understanding racial inequity? Yeah. Um, And so uh, I find that these are two, they're certainly not the only, but two prominent methodologies for, uh, um, for defining or understanding racial injustice. And so the ideal mm-hmm. society approach, uh, perhaps John Rawls, a famous political theorist uh, that wrote this book in the 70s called The Theory of Justice. Uh, he's no longer alive, but uh, really is a seminal in the field of political theory. Uh, and uh, the ideal society approach says that in an ideal society, race would not matter. It wouldn't matter mm-hmm. what race one happens to be. Uh, And so as a result, certain implications follow from that methodological approach. The other methodological approach, the actual society approach, is one in which political theorists were very critical or have been critical of Rawls's approach, suggesting an actual society approach. The actual society approach says that in our actual society, racial inequality and stereotype exist uh, and... uh, you know, their society has to find ways to combat it. So on the ideal society approach, the wrong is racial discrimination on the side of the 
uh, actual society approach, racial stereotype or um, uh, racial inequality uh, is uh, the wrong. I see. And do you employ both frameworks when it comes to understanding these issues? Yeah. And so in the book, I deploy both of them. And in many ways, I see synergies often when politicians from various, either the Republican Party or the Democratic Party, if you look at the Republican platform and the Democratic platform, you can see how the Republican platform, uh, and in particular, uh, conservative justices often will Mm -hmm. invoke or reference this sort of ideal society methodology. In an ideal society, we wouldn't there would be no uh, uh, there would be no discrimination on the basis of race, and then you have the democratic platform and liberal justices often reference or invoke the actual society approach and say racial inequality and stereotype exist in our uh, actual society, and so that uh, racial justice is about uh, combating those uh, wrongs. That's really interesting. Um, building off of that, much of your work, of, of course, focuses on the interactions between constitutional law and racism. And I'm wondering in what ways constitutional law does or does not enable racism. Mm. So uh, that's good. Uh, So one way to see that the constitution then only applies to uh, governmental or state actors. So Mm -hmm. um, in particular, I mean, I had written a book on private racism the Constitution is uh, would be only be about, let's say, public racism, public or governmental racism. Uh, and so in that way that the Constitution uh, only will apply if there's a, a, a state actor uh, that's involved. And so I'll give you another example outside the race context to, to clarify this. So, for example, when people talk about the First Amendment and they talk about Facebook or Twitter, uh, uh, you know, um, deleting an account or kicking someone off, those are private actors. So in fact, they are not, they are in they don't violate anyone's constitutional right to freedom of speech. Uh, and so, uh, you know, it's interesting because now it's private power in particular when you think of freedom of speech, but I think also when you think of, um, you know, not simply freedom of speech, but also you can think about in terms of racial justice, when you're thinking about private power, uh, then you are operating uh, outside of the Constitution. Now, of course, you know, federal the federal government and states have passed laws that seek to regulate and private power or, for example, private employers are forbidden on discriminating on the basis of race. But that is not, that is, uh, um, those are laws that are being passed. That's not uh, as a result of a violation of a constitutional right. Um, And what about the language of rights in our legal system? In your book, Rejecting Rights, I think that you spent some time questioning this premise. And I was wondering if you could talk a bit about that. Yeah. So, I mean, in one way, just as a matter of discourse, uh, Ben, I I view that rights often conversational stoppers. I mean, if one says that there is a right to something, it's not an indication to continue the discussion, but to end it. And so there's a way in which, um, you know, rights then are not facilitative of uh, a kind of uh, disagreement. Uh, And so... um, what I suggest in that book and in other work is that we can view, we can, what we can focus on is the reason or rationale for a particular law or policy rather than what right it happens to violate. And focusing on the reason or rationale may invite 
more of a conversation. Uh, and then we can see whether those reasons or rationales are legitimate, whether we agree with those reasons or rationales uh, in a way that we could have a more capacious discussion. I see. That's a really interesting way of thinking about rights. Um, last year, you published your new book, Private Racism, and I was wondering if you could talk a bit about what inspired you to write the book? Yeah. Um, so in one sense, um, you know, being a member of the government department, we talk a lot about methodology and oftentimes, and that's why you can see it in connection with the panel today, oftentimes when we're discussing methodologies, the methodol- the, the, the um, assumption is that those methodologies are empirical methodologies. Uh, so uh, they could be a behavioral, some kind of... Um, you know, empirical test. It could be some kind of, uh, you know, qual- you know, large data set. And as a result, one runs a regression on that or one, one does an experiment, right? So when we think of methodologies, that's often what comes up. Uh, and, you know, it occurred that political theorists uh, are political scientists too, and we too deploy methodologies. Our methodologies are just not empirical ones, but evaluative ones. And so then I sort of thought, well, what would be the kind of evaluative methodologies? And so then, you know, in, um, in writing the book was the idea, well, independent of racial justice, there are these two methodologies. There's an ideal society approach and this kind of actual society approach. Again, they're not the only ones, but they're really prominent in the field of political theory. Uh, And so as a result, that got me seeing, okay, if there are these different methodologies, what would a work or a book look like that deploys both of them? So oftentimes what you would get, and you all you get this in the empirical work too, there's there are those that favor one methodology over another. And, um, you know, maybe that makes sense in a way when you're talking about empirical methodology, but when you're talking about an evaluative methodology, if it turns out that American society, uh, you know, adopts or endorses different methodologies, well, then that would be in, in a way what the, in, in sort of, as a result, when, for instance, we're talking about affirmative action, and there is disagreement about affirmative action. Some say it's wrong, right? And others would say race-based affirmative action is a way to remedy racial injustice. What explains that disagreement is the book is sort of flags that disagreement as a methodological disagreement. And so part of the book came out of this idea that um, methodological disagreement is not simply something that empirical scholars discuss or engage in. That is something theorists also engage in. And, um, you know, you saw a bit about that in the panel. I mean, you know, you had humanist scholars. And so there's ways in which these frameworks and methodologies uh, then, you know, that's, it's a methodological disagreement. And I also see that that in seeing it as a methodological disagreement can also be instructive in discussing and teaching about this uh, in the classroom. I see. Thank you. And what were your main findings in the book? Well, so the main finding was that if you take these two methodologies that are uh, two prominent ones in American society, and you look at what their overlapping consensus would be, their overlapping moral consensus. So these are two evaluative methodologies. They will sometimes go in opposite directions. So for instance, if one is thinking about the permissibility, the moral permissibility, is it wrong to engage in 
race-based affirmative action, these two methodologies may generate then contrary conclusions. But if there's also a sense in which these methodologies are, there's a consensus and the consensus is private racism, that is racism that takes in the place in the private sphere is something that both methodologies would say is wrong. So that's why the book is not does not so pick one methodology. It does not favor one that I knew you'd asked that earlier. Uh, it just simply deploys both of them to see what consents, whether private racism uh, is wrong under both. And the book goes through various chapters or instances of private racism, explaining that both methodologies would say that what is being discussed here is wrong, uh, is a form of racial injustice. So if you have two prominent methodologies saying that, uh, that is, um, you know, represents a more impactful conclusion than one in which it is simply one methodology. So for instance, I, when I presented earlier portions of this book, someone said, well, why don't you just use, you know, one methodology, the actual society approach? Why are you using this other methodology? And so, you know, part of the idea is, is that, um, is that if one can use both in order to have a consensus, it creates, it, it establishes, a, it's a more impactful uh, argument or so as, or so that was, that's the intention. Ben. I see that makes a lot of sense and that's absolutely brilliant. So thank you for explaining that a bit more. Uh, I very much appreciate it. Um, out of curiosity, uh, I feel like there's this, tension here, maybe between achieving institutional change uh, when, when it comes to confronting private racism or structural racism more generally, uh, achieving institutional change and focusing on altering individual behavior. Hmm. And is there one that we should prioritize over the other or can we address both simultaneously? Yeah, so that's an excellent point. I mean, in one part of the book, you know, I talk about um, racial steering, which often is talked or mentioned and in, discussed when one talks about real estate agents directing prospective home buyers to particular uh, areas uh, in terms of race. And obviously, this was used in order to keep residential areas segregated. Obviously, racial steering is 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 illegal under federal law, and real estate agents are forbidden from disclosing racial demographics of an area. And so one way we can see this sort of, rather than view this as a tension, but rather as um, a connection, is that in the online world now, where most individuals meet in other individuals. So there's a chapter on um, intimacy, but also when we are uh, looking almost at anything, we are engaging in it online, Airbnb, you know. Um, so the idea is, as these private platforms, again, this goes to the idea, these private platforms are not subject to constitutional constraints, but these private platforms structure how individuals associate with each other in cyberspace. That's you know, how often we're doing most of our interactions, especially during, you know, uh, COVID, right? And so if it turns out that these private platforms are set up in a way to facilitate racial discrimination, to facilitate individual behaviors that would be considered to be, uh, um, 
racially motivated or considered to be instances of racial discrimination, well, then we can be attuned to that. And so in asking websites and platforms uh, to be cognizant of that is a way to suggest that the terms of association and the way in which we interact on these sites is them, are themselves up for, uh, you know, that's up to the how the site sets it up. We can set it up in a way that uh, either discourages certain kinds of behavior or actually advances uh, uh, racial justice. So for instance, one example is Airbnb. I mean, there's a sense in which Airbnb, uh, uh, there was definitely studies that show that when there are black folks that are either uh, uh, renting out their place or they're seeking to rent, that they are treated differently than uh, white, white folks. And so part of this, well, how does one, you know, one way that happens is that there are photos, right? If you have a photo of someone and you can see, because if you're, if you, if, if, if the Airbnb, some of them are instant bookings, but many of them are required to get approval from the person that owns a place. So if they can, you know, see your name or see the picture, then they may very well be able to act on some kind of, uh, um, you know, to discriminate on the basis of race. It could make it more likely. So one way to see is, well, how can we structure Airbnb so that that's less likely? And now, you know, that's, so in one sense, uh, there is this sort of tension, but the tension then is just how one structures uh, this. And so in a way, uh, we can focus on the structuring of the website, not so much on the individual behavior, because the individual behavior, uh, you know, I think in some ways takes time or that will happen. But, you know, the structure of how individuals are interacting then becomes an important part of uh, advancing racial justice. I see. That's an excellent way of thinking about this. Thank you for offering that explanation. Next, um, pivoting a bit here, you have quite a large number of degrees ranging from law to philosophy to political science. And I'm seeing this here, but how has your education informed your work? Yeah. Um, so first of all, yeah, you know, I love school, I guess. Right. But the, the idea is, is that in seeking, it's been very interesting sort of being, you know, um, this intersection uh, uh, between political theory and political science and philosophy. So in a way, uh, those seeing how these two, they're two, you know, philosophy and government are two separate departments, but by studying philosophy, and I, at first as an undergraduate, I did a master's in philosophy, but then doing a PhD in political science, I could sort of see the connections between those two departments. And then, of course, in going to law school, uh, ben, it allowed me to sort of see how the Constitution really is a document of a applied political theory. Uh, and so uh, I teach the Constitution as uh, the, the courses, the course on constitutional law is really the science of the Constitution. Political scientists are scientists, we're social scientists. And so studying the science of the Constitution. So in some, in a way, these um, these degree, you know, there have been ways of allowing sort of a way to teach uh, this to students that both that that references the law, that references political science and its scholarly work, and also philosophy. And so um, that's been very instructive uh, in teaching the Constitution. Yeah, absolutely. Again, I've seen a bit of it here, and I'm. Um very impressed with this interdisciplinary perspective that you have. So 
Thank you for that. Uh, my final question is, uh, what advice do you have for young people who are hoping to make a difference? Oh, um, yeah, that's a good. So, I mean, on one hand, I think that the language, I mean, it just so happens that I teach, obviously, courses on the law and the Constitution. There's something about the language of the law, that the law is a powerful instrument. Uh, so even we could see that... Um, particularly during President Trump's term, you had so much attention to the Constitution and the law. Uh, and there's this, th that, that language and understanding how the law shapes and regulates our behavior uh, is uh, important to know because that will then, the more one understands that, then when one is sort of seeking change, seeking uh, to advance some particular uh, uh, you know, to advance justice or advance social justice, however that is understood by the student, the law is very, it's in, important to have that language available because otherwise, um, you know, th that's the discourse. That's how that language, when one speaks that language, you know, as I always say to students, when you speak that language, oh, you know what you're talking, you know, you, you, you know what you're talking about. So you can actually be in a position where uh, you could then have an impact in a way. And of course, the law is not the only uh, uh, language here that's important, uh, but it just so happens that that's obviously the area that I teach in. And so I would say that, uh, you know, learning that can be quite, uh, can be quite instructive. Certainly, that's excellent advice. And I think something for people like myself to consider as we move forward. Thank you so much, Professor Betty. Are you going to take a class then? Am I going to see you in class then? Is that <laughs> potentially? Yeah. I still have my whole senior year, so uh, watch out. Uh, <laughs> um, but thank you so much, Professor Betty. This has been fascinating. I really appreciate you coming on. Well, thank you, Ben. I appreciate you doing this. And uh, it's nice to see that even remotely, right? Uh, and I say this, so I'll say this is that I'm routinely uh, impressed by Dartmouth students. It's one of the uh, really nice things about this place. And uh, it's really fortunate uh, that, uh, you know, we have you all as our students. So thank you so much. Um, and to our listeners, of course, thank you for tuning in. Until next time, everyone. This podcast is a production of the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and the Social Sciences. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers and not of the Rockefeller Center. This episode was produced and edited by Laura Howard. We hope you will join us for our next episode. And if you want more information, you can find us at rockefeller.dartmouth.edu.